worship pastor at Northwest Church. This is our incredible worship band. We're from Seattle. We just want to invite you to a night of worship and teaching. Uh, we're not up here to perform. We are up here to worship our incredible God. Uh, we know these last few years have been heavy. They've been hard. And so right now, I just want to invite you. Let's take a deep breath. Everybody just do that. Let's take one more. We just really want to invite you to relax into the evening, to open your ears and your heart, and to be expectant for God to be speaking to you tonight. Uh, my prayer for you is that no matter the trials and the hardships that you are dealing with or that you have dealt with these past few years, that God will remind you he is the God of peace and that he will restore your hope and your joy. It says in Joel, it says, I shall restore you the years that the locust, the swarming locust, the canker worm, and the caterpillar have eaten. You will surely eat and be satisfied and praise the name of Adonai, your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. Let's continue to worship. Hello everybody, this is Chris Goldman from my home office in Seattle, Washington, in Linwood, Washington to be precise. And I am so bummed that I'm not here with you for this conversation of deconstruction of faith and these two evenings where we're weaving together songs about having faith in God and keeping our, uh, our foundation laid exactly where it needs to be in our faith in God. However, we have some really great things planned for you these two nights, and I wanted to just say a couple of words to you. Uh, first of all, the people who are on stage are an incredible representation of what, for me, the Restoration Movement is all about. We have our worship pastor, who is from the Messianic Synagogue, our keyboardists and vocalists who are from the Assemblies of God and that background in the uh, Foursquare Movement. We have our violist, who has... Uh, a background with the Methodist Church. We have uh, our painter, who is an Anglican priest. We have his wife, Connie Rice, who is a C.S. Lewis scholar you're going to hear from tonight. We have Stan Gramberg, who is going to be speaking where I would have been speaking. We have our drummer and his two sons. Our drummer, who comes from a Harding University background, as far as that goes. And then our guitarist that's over there, Kevin Fox. Uh, he has training from Sunset and myself growing up in the Acapella Church of Christ. When we talk about deconstruction, to get where I'm at, it made me taking apart some pieces of what I was taught and trained so that I could grow into a stronger faith that had the foundation that was Jesus Christ, God as Creator, the Spirit, and the Church, without pretending to think that there is one true congregation, or what we sometimes talk about, one true church, one true congregation that got it all right after a couple thousand years. Now, deconstruction of faith has become a really powerful conversation, especially since Christianity Today released its podcast in 2021, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. For those of us who live in Seattle, we are at ground zero of the conversation of deconstruction of faith. And so we're going to be exploring this. And this wildly popular podcast 
encapsulates why the topic of deconstruction of faith has become such an issue. Not that deconstruction of faith is anything new, but how the leadership of churches, the moral failings of evangelical pastors, and other issues have contributed to an accelerated process of deconstruction. And no one knew deconstruction of faith better than C.S. Lewis. And so we invite to stage Connie Rice, a scholar of C.S. Lewis. Would you please make welcome Connie Rice to the stage? And again, I'm so Hello, everybody. This is Chris Goldman from my home office in Seattle, Washington, in Linwood, Washington. Mine is C.S. Lewis. Uh, so uh, I'm really blessed to be able to share a little bit with you about his life. I'm going to be reading from his book, Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Life, which is a kind of spiritual autobiography, uh, very much in the tradition of St. Augustine or Augustine's uh, confessions. Um, no cheesy wild, crazy things about his life, although there might have been those things. But it's the story of his journey of faith. Um, so tonight, I'm going to begin with the story of the loss of his mother at about the age of nine, just before he was nine, and the impact that that had on his life, and how it moved him towards atheism. And then tomorrow night, I'll be sharing with you an event that took place in his life when he was riding on the top of one of those red double-decker uh, buses that they have in Oxford, and uh, where God spoke to him. And it begins his journey from atheism into theism, and then eventually into Christianity. So that's what I'll be sharing with you a little bit tonight and tomorrow night. So I want to uh, talk about uh, this descent into atheism. C.S. Lewis was uh, raised in a Christian home. Two of his uh, grandfathers were uh, uh, ministers in the Irish uh, church. Uh, he was baptized. Uh, he uh, was taken to church every Sunday, uh, went to church services and Sunday schools, so he had this church background, which many of us have similar kinds of experiences. But he goes on to say, my mother's death was the occasion of what some, but not I, might regard as my first religious experience. When her case was pronounced hopeless, I remembered that I had been taught that prayers offered in faith would be granted. I accordingly set myself to produce by willpower a firm belief that my prayers for her recovery would be successful. And as I thought, I achieved it. When nevertheless she died, I shifted my ground and worked myself into a belief that there was to be a miracle. The interesting thing is that my disappointment produced no results beyond itself. The thing hadn't worked, but I was used to things not working, and I thought no more about it. I think the truth is 
that the belief into which I had hypnotized myself was itself too irreligious for its failure to cause any religious revolution. I had approached God, or my idea of God, without love, without awe, even without fear. He was, in my mental picture of this miracle, to appear neither as savior nor as judge, but merely as a magician. And when he had done what was required of him, I suppose he would simply, well, go away. It never crossed my mind that the tremendous contact which I solicited, solicited should have any consequences beyond restoring the status quo. I imagine that a faith of this kind is often generated in children and that its disappointment is of no religious importance, just as the things believed in, if they could happen and be only as the child pictures them, would be of no religious importance either. When, with my mother's death, all settled happiness, all that was tranquil and reliable disappeared in my life. There was to be much fun, many pleasures, many stabs of joy, but no more of the old security. It was sea and islands now. The great continent had sunk like, like Atlantis. I think that as we are talking about the deconstruction of our faith, that many of us have gone through profound experiences in the last two years. And some of us have lost loved ones and we've experienced great grief and despair and uh, a sense of lostness. I know people who have lost their faith. Um, so Lewis's experience, I think some of us, maybe all of us can resonate with, but we will also be bringing the other side of the story tomorrow night. Thank you. Sunday, uh, we live in Seattle. Uh, we have a son-in-law and a daughter who are planting a church called Missio Church. We go there a few times during the month, and then we go to the Northwest Church the other times. Uh, this last Sunday, we went to both churches. We felt especially, I don't know, holy. <laughs> but we went to Missio to celebrate their fourth birthday, and they had a child dedication, and then we went to uh, the Northwest, and we got there just in time to see Chris up on the screen say, I'm sorry I'm not there today, I have COVID. And so when I got home later that day, I was, I thought, well, let me text Chris a prayer, and because yeah, I know he was so disappointed to not be able to be here. And uh, so I did, in a few minutes, I, I got my uh, a text back from Chris, and then a few minutes later, I got a phone call, and he said, Stan, would you be able to stand in my place down at Pepperdine? And I said, I don't know. The last time you asked me to do that, I was snowed in for two days. But I thought, well, the chances of being snowed in for two days at Pepperdine are pretty small. So I probably can do that. 
So that, that's how I got here today. Over the last couple months, Chris has been leading us as a congregation, as a community of God's people, through the concept of the deconstruction of faith and relationships and then the reconstruction of those. As we start tonight, I want us to reflect a bit on the people of Israel. Now, they had a saying that for the community of their faith, it was a centering statement of their faith and of their belief in God. We call it the Shema, which is here, O Israel. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And whatever circumstances the people of Israel found themselves in, whether as a community or as, as a family or as individuals, the Shema was that place that centered them into that ultimate fact of life that held them together. I think that would be good for us to share tonight. So would you stand? And we're going to say the Shema as a call and response. And we'll do this three times. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Thank you for doing that with me. We need to have those times that reflect back to us the faith that's been instilled in us. Now, as we are talking about the, uh, the deconstruction of faith, here's a, a definition for us. It's, it's a bit of a long one. It's the taking apart of an idea, a practice, a tradition of belief, or a system into those smaller component parts. And here's the key to it. In order to, in order to, it's in order to examine the foundation, the truthfulness, the usefulness, and the impact of our faith. And I, I think those last four concepts are, are really the big ones to it. That the foundation is where did our belief come from? You know, early in our life, if we have come from a family of belief, we receive it. Or even as adults, as we go through a conversion experience, we often receive our faith from the person who's the bearer of that faith in our lives. And so it comes to us in a package, all wrapped up. But as we go through life, we begin to examine that package to say, what's inside this, this box that I've received? And so that foundation is, where did it come from? Who was that person who brought that to me? And then there's truthfulness which is the, the biblical veracity. And oftentimes we find ourselves taking some piece of scripture and by itself it makes sense in the way it's presented to us, but when we put it into the overarching story of the Bible, it loses a sense of coherence to who God is and what his nature is like and how he interacts with us with people. 
And so that truthfulness of what we receive has to be examined. And then we have the usefulness, which is simply, does it work? It's the Dr. Phil question. How's that working for you? Because faith that is useful, it works. It becomes a powerful component in our life. And then there's the impact of it. And I think the impact can only be measured by the refrain of Genesis 1. Whenever God makes something, he looks at it and he says, it's good. It is good. And a faith that is truth and is the, reflects the reality of God, it is a good faith. And it's on those bases that we can place ourselves confidently into that storyline of God that he's brought to us. But what happens, oftentimes it happens in the early years of life for those of us who grew up in a church context, who received our faith from our parents, from our, their friends, from our Bible classes and our Bible teachers. No, they're such wonderful people they are. I remember Sister Carolyn Cobble. She was my first through third grade Bible teacher. Oh, what a delightful, tiny little woman, but faith that was just huge. And she just poured it into us. But we received that faith. But somewhere, usually about the time we graduate from high school and get into college, that's often the time when we run into that first set of deconstruction of faith. And it is a scary, frightening trembling event to go through because we haven't gone through that before. We don't know what to expect. In our churches, we oftentimes don't allow the deconstruction of faith to happen. And so it becomes so overwhelmingly scary and we shake and we crawl up in, into a ball and we cry and sob because we don't know what's happening to us. But we don't need to go through it like that. A second time that that deconstruction of faith can happen is often in those, oh, those, that next set of life as we move into oftentimes our marriage and family and, and early work environment and we start running into people and ideas that we haven't experienced before and they, they begin to take apart those foundations of faith. And that's when we have to take the package apart. So that first stage, it, it's the stable stage. It's when everything's all right. But then we run into that experience or that event or that person or that idea, and it absolutely shatters us. It takes the legs of faith right out from under us, and it leaves us sitting there quivering, wondering what in the world is going going wrong and what is wrong with me because I have been a person of faith, and now I don't even know what to believe. And all that's so scary. But phase two leads into that phase three, which is the questioning part. This is where if we can get to that part and settle ourselves to center ourselves again, to say the Shema, to say that the Lord, our God, the Lord is one, to find that place to center. It's a starting place. It's a place where we can begin to investigate the faith that we have received and to begin to take the pieces apart. Because some of those pieces are never going to be absolutely correct. Others are going to be absolutely foundational. And so we begin to sift through them and to, to make different piles of our faith. 
And we begin to use those experiences to say, how does this work in the world around me? Is it useful? Is it truthful? Is it good? And as we pull those things apart, we begin to enter into that phase four, which is the emotional side of it. Because phase three is very mind-oriented and thoughtful. But phase four, it just moves into the heart, and those emotions are so difficult sometimes to control. They're so difficult sometimes to even allow them to happen. And we feel like those doubts and those ideas that have gone against some of the things that we may have held so, so deeply to, that we find ourselves thinking, what if I was wrong? That's a scary place again. What if I was wrong? Could Grandpa be wrong and Grandma and Dad and Uncle Joe? Could that be? Yes, it, it could be. It could be. But we have to get through those, those emotions. And so we find ourselves sometimes grieving because we're losing something that we had held on to. Sometimes we find ourselves uh, disoriented. We're turned around. We, we don't know where to look. Sometimes we find ourselves feeling like we're staring down an empty hole and we're just simply wondering, where is God? Where is God? That is a completely valid question to ask. Here's what I would tell my students from Cascade from time to time. I said, what I'm doing, you right, doing with you right now is I, I'm giving you a time-release cap. Because somewhere down the road, I know you're going to run into this deconstruction of faith. But what I want you to do to get ready for that is when you have that awesome experience, when you are at that place and that time amongst those people, wherever it occurred, and you know God is there. Maybe he has spoken to you. Maybe he has come to you in a dream. Maybe you have had a vision. Maybe it has just been that high point on the spiritual mountain. But you know absolutely for certain that God is there and you cannot deny that. You need to put a fence post right there with a sign that says, God is here. And early in our lives, we don't have many of those signposts. But the more that we go through life and put those signposts, we can look behind us and we begin to see those posts. And we say, well, if God was there, and if God was there, and if God was there, God must still be here. Because one of his promises to us is that he will be present with us. And it's that presence that gets us through phase four. And then eventually we come to that new stability, that new sense of, oh, my faith has grown. My faith has developed. I used to see in the mirror darkly, but now I see clearly. I used to think as a child, but now I think as an adult. And so we've gone through that, that deconstruction of faith, but we have reconstructed it as well. That's what we're going to really focus on tomorrow night is that reconstruction. But tonight we want to normalize for us the idea that there is a deconstruction of faith. And this deconstruction is not limited to us. It's not peculiar to us as God believers. It's in the college model today, uh, technology and experiences. It's changing the face of, tech, uh, of education today. Gender identity, our advances in medical capacities and our 
social fluidity that we're going through. It, it's changing the very sense of who people are. The medical field, the traditional work week. We don't have to go into the office anymore. We can stay at home and work 24 hours a day. We don't have to go and work eight hours a day in the office. We can do it all the time. So that's, that's deconstruction. So we're in a phase of society, of the world now, where deconstruction is very common. But it's also common amongst us as God's people. And as a restoration movement, we need to realize that we also have been, we were a deconstructionist movement. We were trying to take that which seemed overly complex and simplify it. And pull it down and we begin to say, we speak where the Bible speaks and we're silent where the Bible is silent. So we restorationists are deconstructionists. Psalm 4 says, it says a couple things. There's some echoes in here. <laughs> it says, answer me when I call. And it did just that. <laughs> answer me when I call, God of my righteousness. You set me free when I'm in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love worthlessness and pursue falsehood? But know that Adonai, that God has set apart the godly for his own. Adonai will hear when I call to him. Tremble, but do not sin. Search your heart while on your bed and be silent. Offer righteous sacrifices and put your trust in Adonai, in God. Now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul would take. Who would teach a three-year-old that? <laughs> but yet, God says it this way. The Lord's my shepherd. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Both of those are statements of faith that come from a community of faith. They come from a church. They come from a group of people with whom we were able to, to live life together and to go through the travails and the happiness, through the sad times and through the joys. And we shared that life together. Jesus has brought us together in what we call a church, in what we call a people of faith, a community, a people who share together a common assurance and that statement of faith that we talked about with the Shema. And in our churches, we need to be able to demonstrate in a healthy way what deconstruction looks like because chances are each of us in our life will go through some period in which our faith is so deeply tested that we wonder whether we're able to come out the other side of it. You know, with Jesus, we sometimes say, well, he would never use social media, but you know that Sermon on the Mount that is so ultimately tweetable. <laughs> Jesus challenged in that sermon, not so much the practices of the religious people around him, but their intent. And it's that intent that we need to be able to come together and to, to verify to pull it apart, to look at it, see what it's made out of. 
And the church needs to be a healthy place where deconstruction is not feared and not to be put aside or not to be put in the cabinet that we don't ever open because something scary lies in there. But in our churches, we need to normalize that process of the deconstruction of faith so that we learn, we practice that in safe spaces. The problem that we run into is that it's, that's not only difficult to accept, but church is not supposed to be just a safe place. It's supposed to be the same place. Every time I've come, it's supposed to be the same. And we do things the same way every time. But what happens when life doesn't follow that is that those same things become ultimately very boring. And they begin to put us asleep spiritually. But life is not static. Life doesn't stay the same. Life changes sometimes moment by moment. Certainly year by year, life changes. And we as God's people, you know what we do best? We do best as God's people when we're on a journey. We tend to, when we settle, we tend to get a little bit weedy. But when we pull up those stakes and we go on the journey of God, what we get to do as people of faith, it's not so much that what we're leaving is so safe and comfortable, though it is that, but what we do is we anticipate the God of the future. We anticipate that around every corner, around over the other side of the hill, we may run into God in a different and a new way that in which we have not seen him before, and our life only becomes richer with each one of those experiences, with each one of those experiences, we can drive down another one of those fence posts that said, God was here. And so church needs to become that place where we celebrate those times when we know that God was here because we as God's people do best when we are a journey people. And then finally, we need to realize that as people of faith, that no person of faith wants to lose their faith. I don't know of anyone that I have, I personally know, who has gone through a deconstruction of faith and not come out the other side of it whole, who has lost their faith, who has done so and thought that was really good. It wasn't good. It hurt. It was disappointing. And as people go through those times, we need to understand that they feel very awkward in our presence. They, they feel out of step with the rest of us. They, they feel like as we come to church and, you know, we, we get into the car and you get the car, where are your shoes? Did I raise you in Africa? And with our family, we had to say, yes, that's exactly what we did. So they left their shoes. And we get to church and we smile and we say, how are you doing? And we're very polite. But in our congregations, in our fellowship, we need to have those in-the-aisle conversations when we say, are you really okay? How is life? Where are you at in your faith? And then we need to do one of the most miraculous things, but I think one of the most neglected things ever. We need to stop and pray for each other. Right there. Right then. Right now. 
It is amazing what God does in those moments when we will actually say, can I pray for you? Because in doing that, we, we are setting around people a hedge of God's presence of protection. And we are saying that no matter what they're going through, it's all right. It's okay. It's okay to feel angry or hurt or afraid or doubtful. It's okay to wonder whether or not I belong in this place. But we are, are blessing them in that intense pressure, and we are giving them one of those greatest messages that we as people can ever hear. You are not alone. We have spent so much alone time lately. And there's something about, you know, I guess introvert, I'm not an introvert, but I guess introverts have found some of their place in this COVID time, but even those that, who are extreme introverts, we don't do well alone. We do better together. And the events and challenges of 2020 and 2021, they created an environment in which deconstruction was seemingly everywhere that we looked. And sometimes, Sometimes it moved into the deconstruction of our relationships. You know, as we, as we went through this, it was amazing that we drew those lines in the sand. And they, they start out just as that, that finger drawing through the sand. You know, are you a mask or no mask? Well, that's pretty easy to know. Are you a vaxxer or a non-vaxxer? Are you red or are you blue? Are you black or are you white? Are you me or you? Because ultimately that's what it became, is if I'm me and you are you and the two of us don't get together and then pretty soon that little line in the sand became a trench and we dug it out and we dug it deeper and deeper and families have sold houses and moved across the country or across states because they no longer wanted to be with those people whom at one time they considered their family because they deconstructed their relationship in this intense time of distress that we've gone through. It's relational trench warfare. And that's why, as God's people, we need to normalize those points in times when our faith feels like it's being pulled apart and twisted and torn, because we are a people who do life better together. And tomorrow night, that's what we're going to focus on. How we do life in a reconstructing way so that no one goes through life alone. So before we sing a little bit more, I want to come over here and take a look at what Dan is creating. Uh, Chris invited Dan to come with us so he would share his incredible ministry of art. Uh, and Dan is married to Connie, so together they are quite the ministry pair. Um, over Christmas at Northwest, Dan painted, was it five? Painted four and added a fifth. Painted four and added a fifth. Incredible pieces of the angels, and um, they're hanging in the hall at Northwest. And every time I pass them, I'm 
literally in awe. I just stopped and I gawked because your gift is so incredible and you're sharing it with us. So tell us a little bit more. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, the ones at, at Northwest Church are four feet by four feet and the one is six feet tall by four feet wide. And so they're big paintings if you go to Northwest Church or nwchurch.com, you can see pictures of them, I think, or soon you will anyway. But this painting is uh, designed uh, in harmony with the theme of these two lectures today and tomorrow, uh, destruction, deconstruction, not destruction. <laughs> Let's not destroy our faith. Uh, deconstruction of faith, or uh, as uh, Pastor Goldman said, a deconstruction of religion. And uh, reconstruction of relationships. Deconstruction is never easy and often feels like everything is out of control. This century, if you'll remember, started with one of the most shocking acts of deconstruction we could imagine, the destruction of the Twin Towers. But if you've been to New York City, you will have seen that that wreckage has arisen, from that wreckage has arisen an amazing new structure and a sense of purpose and unity, not only in our country, but in the world. Um, Um, during deconstruction, we often feel powerless and we feel suspended in position in a position of weakness and we uh, sense of lack of direction. But scripture is clear that when we are weak, we are strong. That is, weak in a certain kind of way, and strong in a certain kind of way that the world doesn't know anything about. Our strength and direction comes from the Lord, and it is in Him, which is what this painting is about, uh, not our personal belief systems or our settled dogmas, but in the living person of the risen Christ. In the church calendar, this is called Easter time until Pentecost. The time, this is the time when Christ, post-death, burial, and resurrection showed himself to be very much alive. And he said to his devastated disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been granted to me. Can you imagine that for one moment? All authority. That leaves out nothing. In this painting, if you'll come back tomorrow night for the session uh, on reconstruction of relationships, you will see the culmination of this painting, and I think it might inspire you. I hope it does. And if you like it and you want to own it, I'll sell it to you. <laughs> In the lobby, you'll see some of our literature and what Connie and I do through Cathedral Arts Ministries, which we call CAM. We are your missionaries to an ever-changing culture. We can help you navigate this, the wonderful changes that are unfolding in these amazing days. And we would love to chat with you Please introduce yourself to, uh, to get to know us and we to get to know you. And tell us your story. We would love to hear that. But through CAM and through the things that we do, we can uh, perhaps be of service to you, be of help to you. And I hope you'll come back because this is just the beginning of this painting. It's not the end.